On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about fat shaming. It started with a celebrity brouhaha, one celebrity saying, yeah, we need to fat shame people because obesity is getting out of control. And another celebrity saying, why would you do that? Is it a good idea? Should we make fat and obesity and all that kind of thing not socially acceptable? We'll talk about that one. Uh, we're going to be chatting with the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. They start their season this Friday. Steve Stayos will be here. And the news that broke late Wednesday night about Justin Trudeau in blackface, brownface, whichever, the pictures in his yearbook while he was a 30-year-old teacher, not a child, a 30-year-old teacher. How much of an impact is this going to have? And, you know, here's the problem. It was just a week and a half or two weeks ago that old video of Andrew Shear was brought out by the liberals saying, look, look, 15 years ago, Andrew Shear was a bad, bad man. Well, how then can you dance around this one? It is going to be a tough spot. We're going to talk about it with Stephen LaDrew. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. To the surprise of no one, I would think, in these days when... uh, The past is not necessarily your friend. Behavior in the past has massive consequences. People who put stuff on social media, people who have pictures taken, people who, people who leave a trail, man, it can come back. Uh, Social media is going crazy right now with this Time Magazine report showing a photo of Justin Trudeau in blackface while he was a teacher. This is being misunderstood. He was not a student. He was a teacher at a private school back in 2001. They were having an Arabian Nights night. The photo was in the yearbook. How this got not noticed by anybody for 18 years is a bit of a puzzle considering we're in a social media and at a political time when everything is being dredged up. And maybe, I mean, if there's any explanation for it whatsoever, it's that his face in this picture is so dark with paint, with some sort of makeup, that you really can't even tell that it is Justin Trudeau. Now, the Liberal Party apparently has acknowledged that that was in fact him, and he were waiting because apparently he's on his plane or is boarding his campaign plan and is going to be taking questions about this. Um, But already the National Council of Canadian Muslims has called on him to apologize. You know, here's the interesting thing about this. It doesn't seem to me that there has been a lot of wiggle room for people in other parties if there was something like this that popped up. And I question if this was Andrew Scheer, who would be seen as less of a progressive person, if this was Andrew Scheer, would we, half an hour after this story dropped, would we already be hearing calls for his resignation? That this was evidence, unfettered, undisputed evidence of his racism. You know, we've had other things where we've wondered, but now look at this. He's in blackface. I, I, I tend to believe that if this had been Andrew Scheer, if this had been, certainly if this had been Maxime Bernier, unquestionably, there would already, half an hour after this story dropped, there would already be calls for a resignation. Now, maybe, maybe there will be calls. I don't think so, though, and certainly 
does anybody really think Justin Trudeau is going to resign? The problem with this is, the problem with this, and understand whether you're a Justin Trudeau supporter or not, when you build your brand, when you build your reputation, when you build your story on the guy who is the feminist, the defender of all the minorities, the person who takes no crap, you must be a feminist, you must be, and we don't have wiggle room. If you don't support abortion, unfettered abortion, you have no place in the liberal caucus. You must believe a woman when she makes allegations of any kind of sexual assault, any kind. When you, when you become that person, and there is, there is, there are, pardon me, uh, merits in those things. We want to believe women. We should be defending minorities. But when you become that and you become so pious and so sanctimonious about this, where two members of your caucus were accused of something once upon a time and before it was even really fully investigated, you kicked them out. But then you get accused of something in BC of touching a woman, a a, a reporter at one point. And well, the rules are a little different when it's you because You know, you've all heard this before. I don't want to go over all the old stuff, but, you know, she maybe experienced it differently. Well, this is what drives some people nuts, that if you're going to be absolutely rigid about the rules, that this is how we do things until it's me that does it. This is what drives people sometimes nuts. And the people who don't like Justin Trudeau, this is the kind of thing that they point to. A privileged upbringing. The rules don't apply to me. And now, as I say, does anyone, hands up anyone who believes that if this was a caucus member in the Liberal Party, is there a single person who doubts that if this story, this Time Magazine piece that came out tonight, if this had come out and showed a Liberal backbencher in blackface, is there anyone who doesn't think that that person would be kicked out of the Liberal Party? Even though it's almost 20 years old, is there, he was an adult. He was a teacher. He wasn't a child. Is there anybody who believes that that backbencher would not have immediately before, probably before now, that that person would not have been kicked out of the liberal caucus? There's no place in the liberal party for racists like that or some line like that would be offered. What's going to happen now though? An apology? Another apology? An explanation? Look, Gerald Butts is going to have to work really hard to try and spin this one. You can't say that this is about jobs. You can't defend your behavior on something like Lavalin by saying it's about jobs. Maybe that, you know, that may have got him off the hook. You may have been able to uh, wiggle free. He may have been able to wiggle free on that one, but this is completely different. This is, and and let, let me back up for one more second too. I'm not of the opinion, just to be clear, I'm not of the opinion that stuff that has happened long in the past should be held against you in present day. I think people can change. I think people can learn from things they've done. I think that I I certainly don't believe that I am the same person today that I was 20 years ago. I don't believe that for a second. But we've seen examples many times 
where this has been applied vigorously to people. And you are a hypocrite then if you apply it with extreme vigor to others, but then find squishy excuses and middle ground for yourself. Had Justin Trudeau not been the the Justin Trudeau who was so indignant about certain things, this wouldn't be nearly as big a deal because as I say, it's 20 years ago, but come on, let me bring in Stephen Ledrew. We've at the last minute called upon a national post correspondent, former president of the liberal party, Stephen Ledrew. Uh, Stephen, thanks for joining us. I know it's very last minute. Thanks for doing this. Always my pleasure, Scott. Uh, you saw that you probably saw this story pop up on your Twitter feed or somewhere else in the last half hour or so. What, when you looked at when I looked at it the first time, I went, "Okay, is this like Babylon B or is this some sort of joke thing?" Because it didn't seem like it could possibly even be real. But the New York papers are already bringing it up. I just saw the New York Times, New York Post. Oh, it's legit. Time Magazine is the one who published yeah. this, so it is legit. Yeah. What's your reaction when you see it? Well, you know, I'm always. My dad was a preacher. You know, I'm always one to forgive. And yet it's because Trudeau holds everybody to such a high standard that I think the Conservatives have just won a majority government. I'll tell you why. Because of this? Yes. Wow. I'll tell you why. Because Trudeau has gotten away with a lot of things for a lot of times. He uh, had uh, two members of Parliament. He ruined their lives when he was the leader of the third party, as he was before the last election. When they, there were allegations made against them about sexual um, abuse, sexual harassment. And in one case, your listeners will recall, Scott, that one of the MPs went to bed with a woman after a long night of drinking. She went back to his hotel room. She provided him with a condom. And then later on, in the morning afterwards, when her head cleared, said, oh, well, that wasn't... That wasn't um, that wasn't uh, approval, you know, because I was under the influence. Trudeau didn't even ask a question. Boom. Kick the guy out. He's ruined. Scott Andrews, Newfoundland. Unsubstantiated allegations. He is ruined. And yet Trudeau himself, when a story came up about a reporter years ago who he had fondled, said, oh, well, you know, there are different interpretations of different things. I mean, so when Trudeau has... To make a point, he will say anything, and then when it comes back to his own behavior, he, of course, says, well, he makes some excuse. This is another story. Right now, Trudeau has no, no tolerance for anybody else's failure. And yet, right now, I don't know what he's saying tonight about this, but clearly, according to his own standards, Scott, this would, if, if, can you imagine a member of parliament or... Um, a former cabinet minister saying anything like this, doing anything like this. And we just, yeah, just before you came on the air, I said, they, if this was a liberal backbencher who got caught and oh. there was an election going on, they would have been excused already. Absolutely. They would have been excused. They would have been hung up and dried. <laughs> so, I mean, it's terrible. So, and what about if there had been an opposition member who had done this? Well, yeah. That, and I said, if this was Andrew Scheer, it would have been oh. just proof that he really is the racist or, or, or Maxime Bernier, the absolute proof that they are the racist. Now, but here's Trudeau the... Trudeau is like that, Scott. You know that. Your listeners should know that. And I've, I've been stunned in this election. I'm just writing um, my rant for the National Post. I've been stunned at how people say, well, Trudeau will win. And I say, well, what about all his policy failures? What about all his personal failures? 
Yeah, yeah, it's okay, though. I just, I just, I don't understand it. But this one, I think, because he has set such a high standard for everyone else in the world, now he's going to have to pay for it. I think the Conservatives have won the election. Well, here's the problem with this picture, as far as I'm okay. concerned, for him. Uh, the, the, the story about the Kokanee Grope, as it was called, uh, we don't really know for sure what happened. It was uh, two different versions of a story, and he says someone else misinterpreted, so it becomes gray and fuzzy, and we but don't really is, know. But she, no one has ever challenged her version. No, but but we don't, she's never, she wrote the piece, but she never right. really spoke up after. That's the right. SNC-Lavalin story with the, uh, with the, with the um, refusing to waive the, uh, cock or the uh, cabinet confidentiality, we sort of know what happened, but we don't really know what happened, so you can say it's about jobs and it's fuzzy and it's gray. Right well, you now, are giving him, Scott, you are giving him far too much credit. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm speaking from some parts of the electorate who are willing to cut slack and say, I okay. don't really believe it. I Here you. you have a, a picture that you're looking at. There is no way that he can say, unless he says this was photoshopped and popped up now, there is no way he can say, I didn't do this. Here you have physical, tangible, unfettered evidence that people will be looking at. This one you can't, I don't think, dance around. Well, oh, he's going to dance. You and I and your listeners tonight know he's going to dance. He's not going to throw up his hands and say, okay, I'm No, here. but what do you say? That's not me? He's going to, no, he's going to say, it was a different time, and I wasn't making any fun of anybody with brown skin or black skin, and there were different circumstances. He's going to futz his way out of it and hope that Canadians will say, oh, yeah, well, we'll believe them this time again. Didn't we see something, though, very well, sort of similar to this down in Virginia just a month or so ago with the governor or the senator or someone Absolutely. from Virginia? And, you know, that was 25 or 30 years old. And I don't, I don't remember people saying, well, you know, come on. It was like, look, Stephen, I am... As I said before, just before you came on the air, I, I don't necessarily believe that we should hold people to behaviors 25, 30, 40 years ago. I, and I agree with you, but he does. But that's the problem. That's been the problem. If this was not someone who had held people to these standards, as you've pointed out, then I would say, look, he was a young man who did something stupid, move along. But there are people whose lives have been held to a lofty position by him. How do you not then apply the same standard to yourself? He has, he has changed... Canadian history with his apologies and saying that, you know, McDonald did this wrong and Langevin did this wrong. And he stands up in the House of Commons and cries and apologizes. He hasn't apologized for his father continuing on the residential schools for natives. His father actually took them over and had the, gov- had the government run them. He hasn't apologized for that because, of course, it was his dad that did that. Uh, he will apologize for people doing things that he has no connection with. But when it comes to his own circumstances, he'll make an excuse. You raise one other really interesting point, Stephen, and I hadn't even thought of it, and that is all those things about the Langevin block, the name being taken off, and the Sir Johnny McDonald. People, defenders of those people said it was a different time. We we thought of things differently. That takes away the answer or the explanation that he would give saying it was a different time for this because you you have hung old long gone people out to dry for their behaviors because what was wrong then wasn't really, it was wrong. Even if it was okay then, it was still wrong by today's standards. I don't know how you dance around this one. Well, I'll, I'll tell you how he's going to do it. And you're absolutely right, Scott, because, you know, when not, not only McDonald, but all the cabinet ministers and prime ministers since then, including his dad, thought it was the right thing to do with residential schools. They said, we are helping people. <coughs> Scott, pardon me. 
It turned out they weren't. He's going to say, he's still going to say, it's a different, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. No problem. It's a different time. But, for himself. Yeah, but again, that, that argument has seemingly, to me, gone out the window. The, I want to go back and reiterate this one more time, because I think it's really important, because there's going to be some people saying, come on, it was a long time ago. I am, I am 1,000% in agreement, and I would never want someone, not that I've got that many skeletons in my closet, I hope I don't anyway, but I would never want someone to, to hold up every word I said as a 19 or 20-year-old and say, you are disqualified from any participation in any form of life or public life or whatever else because of something you said as a 19-year-old idiot. But that has happened here, and that's the problem because it's been that standard has been used by him and by the people around him against others. And once you've been as as un, inflexible, I guess, yeah. it, it just seems very inconvenient when you have to use the same argument. You're absolutely right. It happens with Kavanaugh in the States right now, and I wrote an argument yesterday, the Supreme Court Justice. Yes. I don't want anybody on the Supreme Court who has never made a mistake, who has never said anything stupid. Every teenager, every person in their 20s has made a mistake, and, they, and that's how you learn. That's how you become you, Scott, on radio, able to judge things or work things. That's how we have good judges who say, you know, in some leniency, yeah, I've been there, and um, this was, you know, just a dumb thing that a teenager did, or I've been there, and this goes beyond it's a dumb thing a teenager did. Trudeau has been saying to everybody ever since he became leader that I have a different standard. And I am perfect. And we don't do these things in Canada. He said in an interview in the States uh, two weeks ago, Canadians know the difference. And here he is again. And he is just caught up in his own petard. So I think that... Well, yeah. And just before I let you go, yeah. Stephen, just it was, what, two weeks ago when we had the video that was pulled out by Ralph Goodale of Andrew Shear from 15, 16, 17 years ago and showed up as what a buffoon he was because he was against gay marriage. And look, yeah. Andrew Shear is a horrible person for what he said back then. It would be very difficult to try and form an argument that says Andrew Shear 15 years ago, don't forget <laughs> what he did. But what I did 19 years ago, oh, forget that. I'm a different no, person but today. You know what? Trudeau is a master, Scott. Trudeau is a master of pulling a double standard. He has done it so many times. Talk about transparency in government. And he is more um, controlling as prime minister than Harper ever was. Just look at the evidence on the SNC Lavalin scandal. He has held it back and said, oh, no, 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 no problem with that. His Justice Committee, loaded with liberals, has prevented other people from testifying. Where's the transparency in that? Well, that was then, this is now. He has gotten away with that for, for a long time. I'm still stunned at how high he is in the polls in this election when we've had four years of Trudeau, who is somebody who says one thing and does another. But on this one, and you're absolutely right, Scott, to point it out, it's going to be hard. There are the pictures. He's a guy who has a high standard, and to say, well, that was then, this is now, 20 years ago, I'm not sure it's going to wash. And the thing is, with the Canadian people, if it does wash, then shame on us. Stephen LeDrew, really appreciate you jumping in on such late notice. Thanks for doing this. Always good to chat. See you there, Scott. You know, so here's, the, here's what I hope comes of this, because I, I, I don't know what the answer is going to be tonight, but 
if nothing else, because there are going to be people who are going to say, come on, you're making a big deal about this. I'm making a big deal about this and other people are making a big deal about this again because of the way the system has worked. Would it be ideal if now everybody were to say, see, this is why you don't go digging into people's past for stuff that they have changed since then. We got to be a little flexible, a little forgiving, a little reasonable. I would hope that out of anything that comes to this, because I do not expect Justin Trudeau to step down. There's no chance that's happening. He's not going to step away from the election. That's not going to happen. Let's all look at this and go, you know what? Next time we find a video or a picture or a quote from someone 20, 25, 30 years ago that may not be ideal, that may sound awkward, that may sound ugly, that may sound wrong. Ask the person about it. And they say, you know what? That was, I was a kid. I'm sorry. That was 30 years ago. And yes, I've changed. Let it go. We don't need to turn everything into a weapon, but when you're the one who uses everything as a weapon, You've got to expect that when you load the gun and point it at your own head, someone else is going to pull the trigger, which is what's happening here. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if you heard about this fight that has been going on uh, among celebrities for the past few days. It is a, um, it's not a stupid fight. I mean, we, we hear about celebrity fights all the time. Stupid things that really you just, it's inane. It's about who's dating who or who's got more money, whatever else. But this is not a stupid fight. Uh, Bill Maher, you know who Bill Maher is? He's a talk show host at night. Pointed out this week or last week that last month, 53 people died in mass shootings in the United States, which is a terrible, horrible, tragic number. But then he followed it up by pointing out that, yeah, but 40,000 people, 40,000 people died of obesity-related health issues. So, he said, time to stop normalizing obesity Time to bring back a little good old-fashioned fat shaming. Let's make it unacceptable again socially for people to be overweight if this is causing all these health problems. Well, this is when James Corden jumps in. James Corden's the guy behind Carpool Karaoke. He's also a talk show host. Uh, he's a heavy-ish man himself. He says that himself. Uh, he His comment, he, he popped in and says, there's a common and insulting misconception. Fat people are stupid and lazy, and we're not. We know that being overweight isn't good for us on and on and on from there. So who's right? Is it the person who says physical health should trump whatever bad feelings you have because we have to get people skinnier again and if embarrassing them a little bit, we'll do it, great. Or is it the person who says, yeah, we know and making us have poor emotional or mental health is not going to do the job. I want to bring in Dr. Sandy Van. She is the director of weight management at Well One Medical Center. Uh, she focuses her clinical practice on obesity and lifestyle medicine. Dr. Van, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show, Scott. Uh, just before we dive into the nuts and bolts of this thing, there's no dispute in any corner of society right now that we have a, an obesity problem, is there? Oh, no, we certainly have a problem with obesity. It is the, the rate of obesity has risen dramatically over the years. Uh, and I'm so glad you're bringing attention to the fact that Bill Maher said some very offensive things and... Let it be said that studies have shown that shaming does not work as a public health or medical intervention for obesity. Okay, so, well, you know what? Let me, let me play devil's advocate here for a second and take Bill okay. Maher's side just for the sake of argument here. <laughs> uh, 
Sure. We have we we acknowledge everybody acknowledges no one's going to argue that we have more large people in society as you say more obese people in society people want to feel good about themselves I don't think anyone's going to dispute that right. so what we do then is we tell people their body is fine we can change our views on what the body can look like so you're going to look great you can feel good about yourself but what he would argue is what we're really doing is whispering sweet nothings into their ear that are totally wrong whereas we should be telling them the truth even though it hurts. Um, okay, well, that's an interesting perspective because what you're saying, what, what he's saying is that we should no longer be telling everybody to move towards that body acceptance model. Um, I think that he's gearing towards more um, accepting our bodies as they are and sort of just allowing um, physiologic processes to take place. From a healthcare perspective, there are um, medical conditions that are associated with obesity. Obesity is a medical condition on its own, but it also generates a lot of other chronic medical conditions. So from a healthcare standpoint, I don't advocate that um, you shouldn't be trying to lose weight if you do carry excess fat tissue on your body. I do love the idea of being able to be self-compassionate in its approach, but I would say that there are benefits to weight loss. I just don't agree with the method or the messaging that he is advocating for. Okay. So the, the concept behind it is right. The way of doing it perhaps is wrong. Well, well, the concept of weight loss conferring health benefits. Yes. Uh, yes. So a five to 10% weight loss can confer significant benefits. So it can reduce your risk of diabetes, blood pressure problems, cholesterol problems. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about fat shaming and it's come up because Bill Maher, the talk show host said, you know, time for some fat shaming to come back. We've got an obese population that maybe needs to be told you're fat. I mean, that's his blunt way of looking at it. But is this a good idea? We're talking with Dr. Sandy Van, who is the director of weight management at Well One Medical Center. And just before the break, Sandy, you were pointing out that one of the things Bill Maher also pointed out is, look, smoking used to be socially acceptable. Drinking and driving used to be more socially acceptable. Driving without a seatbelt used to be socially acceptable. Shaming campaigns have pretty much made all of those socially unacceptable now. So why not obesity? Well, I think that he was confusing shame with education. I think education campaigns can be part of any health, public health initiative, uh, like the ones that we're taking for smoking and seatbelts, and that speaks to uh, the effectiveness of it. And there's more of a movement now towards educating the public and healthcare practitioners about obesity as a disease rather than this lifestyle issue that people have caused themselves. The... I think if I interpret it and, you know, look, I'm not going to speak for Bill Maher. He can speak for himself. He's got Mm -hmm. a big platform, but I think (laughs) what he is getting at in a stumbling kind of way is that we have in some ways normalized obesity. Now, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, but I mean, I, I look at one example like... Uh, the Sports Illustrated Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, where in the last couple of years, they've had very plus-size women, which some will say, look, that's terrific. We've got now women who are beautiful women who are bigger mm-hmm. than these usual anorexic models. On the flip side, some would say, well, now we're glamorizing a potentially unhealthy lifestyle, which that's not something we should be doing. Where do you, where do you go with that? Well, I, I think I would come from the perspective of, you know, everybody's body shape is different and we all inherit different types of body shape. Weight is also something that can be inherited and that not everybody who 
looks like the carry excess weight is actually defined as unhealthy. So there are people who can carry extra weight and actually metabolically have perfect blood work versus a lean person. So I would say that we, I guess we have to be careful about defining everybody who looks like they have a different size than uh, what's conventionally deemed to be beautiful um, as unhealthy. I was talking uh, briefly to another doctor who worked in weight loss this morning, and one of the uh, comments he made was that, well, this is an illness. You, you don't shame an illness. Do, do you agree that, that obesity is an illness? Oh, 100%. We have so much research to suggest that obesity is rooted in uh, genetic causes, and most of the genes that regulate your body weight are influencing the appetite hormones that signal whether you're going to eat or whether you're going to stop eating. Um, So we know that there are so many things that you actually can't control about what you've been inherited with and that these manifest in eating behaviors that might look to the general public as a lack of willpower, but it actually isn't. So if it's an illness, I think a lot of people then the follow-up question would be, well, it's obviously not something that is transmittable. You can't get obesity from someone else. So why do we have so many more cases today than 10 years ago, 15, 20, 25 years ago, if it's not something that can be caught? And we know it can't be caught. So why the sudden influx or, or, ex, or massive yeah. spread of the disease or the illness? Yeah, I think the low-hanging fruit on the answer for that is really the industrialization of food. Um, so if you it just sim- very simply put, and this is an elementary way of describing it, our brains are designed for a hunter-gatherer era. And we still continue to be hunter-gatherers. And there's this evolutionary mismatch now where we're a hunter-gatherer, but we're plopped in this environment where there's a coffee shop on every single corner, right? So it's, it's, it has a lot to do with the, the environmental causes. Um, interacting with the genes that we've been brought up with. So is this entirely then a physical illness or is it also a social illness with our society that we're creating this? Oh, entirely multifactorial. Multifactorial. So obesity genes, there there are many, many of them, Um, up to 70% heritable, um, much like height. I'll use height as an example. So uh, if you you have a set of genes that dictate the maximum height potential, if you are born in a place that's impoverished, you're malnourished, you, God forbid, catch uh, uh, an acute illness, you will not grow to your maximum potential, right? Okay. So that's, a, that's an example of genetics inter- interacting with your environment. In the same way, obesity, if you're born with genes that make you vulnerable to gaining weight and you're in this environment where food is easily accessible, then you're at very high risk of gaining weight. I'll throw one more thing at you, and again, playing devil's advocate with what Bill Maher said, and that would be with your point that food is so easily accessible. If we were to make it socially unacceptable for people to be super heavy, and I'm not talking about a little overweight, I'm talking about like super heavy, so that would there not be a chance that they would not then go into fast food places because, you know, you're going to get the stink eye from people if you go in to order a Big Mac and you're already very, very large. Would it have a deterrent effect on these people if it was that way? The same as in some places standing outside smoking a cigarette, people are going to give you the stink eye. Right. So I think that uh, people sometimes intuitively think that that is the case, that you can shame somebody out of uh, behavior. But the reality is that for physicians anyways, we practice evidence-based medicine. Evidence comes in the form of research. And we just have so much research to suggest that, you know, people who are discriminated for their weight are three times likely to remain obese. And if the objective is to help people lose weight, then fat shaming is not going to do it. 
Appreciate the time. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, that is Dr. Sandy Van from Well One, uh, well One Medical Center. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. It's uh, look. It's, I kind of get Bill Maher's general concept. I don't agree with the. I, I I understand the point that we've got way too many obese people. That's just reality. I'm not entirely sure. In fact, I'm pretty sure. In fact, I'm thoroughly sure that I don't agree that shaming people is going to help for the same reason. But, you know, it it is not something that's going to go away because we do have a wildly overweight society and getting more so. Used to be, we used to look at the Americans and go, wow, look at them. They're huge. Now it's us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Two years ago. The Hamilton Bulldogs won the Ontario Hockey League Championship. You, I'm hoping, are familiar with that. You were aware that that happened. Last year, they were, so they're four teams. They win the Ontario Hockey League Championship. They go to the Memorial Cup. There's three other teams there. They're the only one of the four teams that qualified for the Memorial Cup that ended up making the playoffs again the next year. The other three crashed and burned. They had blown their brains out on making that one team, and they were done. The Bulldogs managed to hang around, made the playoffs. This year, well, they start on Friday. They have their home opener on Saturday want to bring on the general manager and president of the team, Steve Stale. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, thanks. Uh, so you guys get going. I have a feeling a lot of people, when they show up this year and they want to see your team, are going to be t- looking at the players and saying, okay, uh, who's that? you got a lot of new guys on this team this year. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still in the, uh, you know, you mentioned the 2018 OHL Championship and uh, going to the Memorial Cup and, you know, there's uh, there's certainly a process in trying to get back to where we want to get to. Um, you know, even last year we're still in the mode, Scott, where you know Mackenzie Enwistle and Brandon Sage and Nicholas Madden were still part of our team, and um, you know, uh, trying to make moves to be able to bring in some young talent and some draft picks to still rebuild. But we're extremely excited about the group. I mean, there's uh, a lot of returning players that our fans are going to excited to see and uh, some new players as well but uh, uh, you know we're in that next phase and that next uh, level of, of trying to get back to where we want to get to this is part of the world of junior hockey there's just it's endless churn right I mean you you're not allowed to keep guys forever yeah I mean if I could figure out a way to be able to be contenders every year um, you know we're, we're trying for sure um, but uh, like you said we were really proud of our year last year and I know for our fans um, it was a rewarding year for them. As much as they loved watching us uh, hoist the J. Ross Robertson Trophy at home here, um, you know, but uh, enjoying that championship year. But as far as the rebuild or retooling or however you want to call it, there's been a lot of excitement around the young players that we've brought in here and the players uh, that are going to be around for a few years moving forward. In your mind, is this sort of officially now the start of the second generation of the Bulldogs? Because the guys, the very first guys who were drafted on the team, Matt Strom and Entwistle and those guys, they are now, this is the first year they're gone. That you have, there is no, well, there's Isaac Nurse who was drafted in the first year, but pretty much everybody from that first era, all the big name guys, they are now gone. Is this now, as you see it, the, the sort of the new, the new Hamilton Bulldogs for the next step? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's that's accurate for sure. Um, you know, I haven't thought about it that way. I think it's it's a process for us, Scott. But it's something that uh, I think you put it really well because those players have all moved on. Um, I remember when I got into this. Uh, interestingly enough, a very high level executive in the NHL um, that I talked to about 
the situation said to me, "Guys, going to take you four or five years, you know, get in there and be patient." And we were uh, we we were able to do it much quicker. Um, and, but uh, but you're right; that four year mark is probably you know you draft these players, you bring them in as 16 year olds, they get sort of that just a taste of it, and then they start to build up on their career and put the team together to try and you know go for it. But yeah, it's probably about a four year cycle is, is accurate. So this is this is the next level of it, and exciting. I mean. Logan Morrison going into his draft year, Avery Hayes, all these young, great talents. Um, Arthur Kaliev, uh, Jan Janik, players uh, that our fans already know about, highly impactful guys. Tag Bertuzzi, um, you know, a, a name with some pedigree, and a guy who was injured for us last year. Just, it's ex- an ex- exciting time for us and our coaching staff as well. Just before we get to those guys, uh, we mentioned some of the players who are now gone. They've got they're trying out for NHL teams. Uh, Brandon Sagan and Mackenzie Entwistle and Matt Strom and a bunch of others. Do you follow those guys when they're gone? Do you keep up with players once they've graduated? I, I do for sure. Yeah, and you know what we've built that relationship, and it's something that we feel like we're differentiating our, ourselves as an organization with just the relationship we have with our players, and uh, you know they feel comfortable picking up the phone or texting me at certain times and. We certainly do keep in touch for sure. I mean, it's a it's a bond that lasts forever. Um, you know, again, we want to create an environment here that uh, that differentiates yourself. So, to answer your question, yeah, I do keep in touch with those guys. I wonder if it would be a bond that would last forever if you finished last every year. <laughs> they just want to get out. But <laughs> thankfully, you haven't had to answer that question yet. Um, in junior hockey, when you're working in junior hockey, though, especially in the position you are, where you're building the team. How much can you really know about the team before the season starts? And I, I mean, I don't mean that you don't know the guys you've drafted, but you're talking about young men who, from April when one season ends until they show up in September, either the guys on your team or the guys on other teams can change physically dramatically. You could have a guy who shows up as a completely different player five, six months later. This would be the greatest fantasy week of any sport. I think the first two weeks uh, leading up to the OHL season, because everybody's trying to do projections. And uh, to your point, though, I mean, we're not talking about 23 or 25 or 30 year old athletes. Uh, there is certainly a lot of change that can go on with these guys. But uh, uh, you know, I mean, we we look at we look at it every single day on where we think that we are and in comparison to the Eastern Conference or, or overall in the league. Um, you know, so we feel comfortable where we are right now going into the season. And it's just, uh, uh, you know, it, it all sort of comes to fruition. It's the greatest thing about junior hockey. I think you come in and you really, you, you feel good about, I think everybody feels good about where they are as a group. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing how this team kind of comes together. I was just going to ask you that. Are you a guy who naturally is an optimist who just assumes that everything is going to work out for your team? Are you a pessimist who just assumes that things are going to go wrong? Or are you a show-me kind of guy who just says, I have no clue what's going to happen until we start the season? I think all three. <laughs> uh, it depends on the time that it's got. Uh, no, I mean, I joke about that, but I'm, I'm definitely an optimist. But more of a wait and see, and I understand is again we're talking about sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old young men who are just kind of coming into their own. So we just want to provide the the environment, the platform for them to do it. But uh, I would say at certain points, depending on what time you're calling me, um, I've been on all three uh, sides of that. One of the guys, and you mentioned a bunch of the players who are going to be here. One of the guys who I assume is going to be back. I don't think he's back yet, uh, but he could be. 
shortly is Arthur Kaliev. A lot of people are going to be watching him. He had 50 plus, 51, 52 goals last year. Uh, supposed to be a first round NHL draft pick, at least that's what most people had expected. I certainly expected that. Slips all the way down to midway through the second round. You know the kid. What, what, if any, impact is that going to have on him that it didn't go the way he expected with the NHL? Well, since the draft, I think it was obvious. It was shocking for us who know Arthur and we get to see him play every day and being around the players every day. Shocking that somebody didn't take him in the first round. Uh, in seeing that, I think the LA Kings did uh, an amazing job with their draft. And I've been in touch with LA and with Arthur through the off season. He's trained in LA. Um, and I guess happy to break the news to our fans that he will be back for game one in Sarnia and obviously for our home opener on Saturday as well. So, um, but plus he's, you know, and, and I think LA realized they, they feel like they got a steal, um, with that player at that pick. It's funny with, with, with goal scorers, it's a little bit easier for NHL players or, or sorry, players, but scouts and executives to pick apart their game. Um, you know, but he doesn't do this, but he doesn't do that. But I mean, 51 goals in his second year. He's 31 in his first year, 51 in his second year. Um, we love the player. We know he's he's going to translate into an NHL player. Uh, we're extremely happy to have him back this year, and he's going to be a real driver for us coming back. And uh, like I said, he's flying back tomorrow from LA, and uh, I'll be picking up at the airport. I, I'm not good at math. I say that all the time. But if he had 30 his first year and 50 his second, that means he would be on pace then for 70 this year. Yeah, I yeah, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, you, Steve, you were an elite athlete. You played 1,001 NHL games. I always remember that number. I really appreciate that you made it such a perfectly symmetrical number that I can always remember it very easily. But you were an elite athlete. Had you been sitting in the arena expecting to be a first-round draft pick and had to come back the next day and then still had to wait for half of the draft to go by, how would you have responded to that? Well, interestingly enough, and I had actually hadn't drawn the parallels to this guy, but uh, I was. I was rated in the first round going into that NHL draft. It was, uh, um, I was rated, I think, 17th overall, and I went 10 picks later. And uh, funny enough, I was the 27th pick in the NHL draft, and when anybody ever asks me, I never start with saying that I was a second-round pick. I say I was a 27th pick overall <laughs> because it looks like I was a first-round pick. But, um, nevertheless, I, I was in that situation. Now, the draft was different back then where you didn't have to wait a full day to get to, um, um, you know, the next day, uh, you know, for your pick. But um, I felt the tension. I sat there. I sat there with my family. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. But I do think that, that uh, you know, already feels – and maybe he feels like he has something to, something to prove, but certainly I felt like I did as well. So, um, I mean, just this player coming back, he's, to me, he's going to be the best player in the Ontario Hockey League this year. And, you know, I think our fans will be able to come out and see it's a special time for us in Hamilton. We don't know if he's going to be back as a 19-year-old. That's how, think, you know, how good I think he is. He could be in the National Hockey League, a Robert Thomas. Um, so, you know, we're, we're just, we're just going to enjoy the time that he's with us and, take advantage of him being uh, one of the best players, if not the best player in the Ontario Hockey League this year. Is he the kind of kid that on one of those days when maybe he's not having his best game that the coaches could whisper in his ear, hey, everyone doubts you, you were taken 33rd, and that would get him going? Is that is that the kind of kid he would be? It'd be a great a great question for Coach Lace and the rest of our staff. Um, I think it's in him, though. I really do. I think it's something that really 
I don't know if it's people doubting him. He just has this real ability to be motivated at all times. And, um, you know, I maybe, yeah, maybe that's something that's going to even drive him to be better. If uh, where he's playing against players that were drafted ahead of him, maybe those are nights where he's going to really step up. Uh, you mentioned Coach Lace, Vince Lace. Um, this is becoming your summertime activity now, your annual summertime thing, which is finding a new head coach. Uh, probably not something you're planning on doing or would love to do every single summer. Um, What do you do? I mean, the situation, I suppose, on the one hand, when John Gruden leaves, he's going to the NHL. That's a good reason. Dave Matzos now steps aside for health reasons and other things. That's not as good a reason. Um, You had, thankfully for you, Vince Lace in the system already, but this has to become something. I'm guessing you would love to have a summer where you can say, you know what, we've got someone and we're just going to ride it through and we get some consistency here. Yeah, well, for sure. It's, listen, the coaching staff, is, it's, it's very unique. And I know when we initially talked about the situation with our staff and some of the adjustments that I was looking to make, I guess externally it seems maybe difficult to understand, but if you inside of what uh, we're all about, and uh, we talk about a lot, but we live it as far as being a family and, and looking out for each other, and putting people in the best position to be successful. Um, you know, at that time. So I'm always looking at that, and uh, I don't think that there's any part of me that's looking to make changes just to make changes. I'm always looking at the individual and the people that we have on board and putting them in the best position to be successful. So, um, yeah, very fortunate that, and it, but, but also part of our my mindset is bringing in good people um, that can grow within our organization. So very fortunate to have Vince Mace was, really, I mean, come a long way um, from being a very good assistant coach and being a progressive guy to really taking over the lead uh, for our group here moving forward. And it goes down the line. Like Dave Matos is an, an incredibly important part of our organization, and him stepping to being associate coach actually makes us better as an organization because I can use him in other areas within the organization. He's had a great deal of experience within our league, but Certainly for, for, for Vince, it was, it's his time. He's a um, you know, very progressive guy with a ton of energy. The players really respond to him. He's a developer, um, not just from a, a physical standpoint or an online standpoint, but also from a local standpoint as well. So I'm really looking forward to the season and watching how his coaching staff develops their players. What, we only have a minute or two left here. What are you looking at as a reasonable season. I mean, Vince said the other day that you're going to be one of the youngest teams in the league. What, what's a reasonable outcome for you this year? Well, I mean, not to get too technical, but we feel like, uh, when, I, when I look at it from, from my scope as a manager, I look around the league and try to engage where we are. Um, the 2000 age group, um, for, for whatever reason, isn't as highly impactful as, as, as certain years. Um, I like our one group. I think with Kaliev and, and Bertuzzi and Mutter and Van Loon and players like that, our back in with Saprika, Desio, Steos, we have a group of players at the 18-year-old level that I think are going to be able to have an impact in our league, um, where typically it's just 19-year-olds. So um, I'm not sure. I really, I'm really excited for this year. For, for, and, and going back to even when I first came in, back to the Ontario Hockey League, I really thought that there was always going to be two or three teams on each conference that are they, okay. Those are the guys. Those are the teams. Um, where this every year, you know, in the last couple of years, I've looked at it going, man, there's so much more parity. 
and I'm not sure who's going to kind of step up. So very difficult to say where we are, but uh, I, I'm excited about the group again. I mean, I've said it a number of times, but uh, looking forward to getting it started. That is Steve Stales. The season starts for the Hamilton Bulldogs on Friday. Home opener is Saturday. Steve has guaranteed a win on Saturday night right here <laughs> on the air against the Erie Otters. I heard that correctly, right? Just like that? Okay, just like that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> Steve Stales, general manager and president of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Appreciate the time. Good luck this year. Yeah, I always appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. Uh, again, Saturday night, home opener against the Erie Otters. Sadly, the Erie Otters do not any longer have Connor McDavid. But you can still go see them. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.